this is James Fox, and you're listening to That UFO Podcast. The school holidays have arrived in my household, and Let's Make Art, a new podcast sponsor, has been a real smash hit. Their custom art boxes have gone down a treat with not only the little, but the big kids in my house as well. Whether it's a miserable day and you're stuck indoors, or you want to just have a chill day at home, but enjoy the sun outside, there really is a custom art box for you. Anyone can have an art supplies delivered right to their door in the form of monthly subscriptions, project kits and supplies for a variety of different activities. Whether like me, you're a total beginner, an absolute amateur, or you've mastered the arts, the supplies and tutorials in each art box, they are designed to encourage, support and enhance your experience with art. Go to letsmakeart.com and start your next art project today and be sure to use promo code UFO art in the checkout and you will save 20% off your order. That's a huge 20% off. I've posted my special link in the show notes so you can go to zen.ai forward slash UFO art for 20% off. And thank you to Let's Make Art for sponsoring this episode. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. It's another documentary review and I've got Dan joining me for this one. Hello, hello. It's uh, it's good to be here again. Mm. And Dan, we've got a guest. If you're watching this on YouTube, depending on how much Dan can be bothered, he might already have the guest's picture there and you'll know who it is. Otherwise, <laughs> otherwise it'll be a surprise if he fades it in. It'll, uh, it'll always be a surprise, yeah. Always, okay. Surprise. Yeah, we want the yeah. reveal there. We've overdone it now. I, I should have been like, oh, it's Chris Mellon. And then people would have been all excited. Um, FYI, folks, I got a very, very polite knockback from Christopher Mellon uh, personally a couple of days ago. He's just busy just now, he said. But yeah, but at least he said no to me. Yeah, so, yeah. he's yeah. engaging. That's something. It's not Chris Mellon, Nathan, so I'm really going to disappoint people now by it's Nathan. <laughs> yeah, Nathan, as you'll know him online as Nathan, a waif soul, a long-time listener to the podcast, but obviously in his own right now, a very esteemed podcaster, researcher, commentator, bon viveur, entrepreneur, and any number of things. Uh, Nathan, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. Good to be here. It's very good to have you on. And uh, yeah, I, I wanted to get you on something for quite a while. And when this came up, I said to Dan, look, let's let's get Nathan on for, for a conversation. And the stars have aligned. And we're all here to talk about James Fox 2002 effort out of the blue. Um, so I've got to say a very quick hello to my little brother, Mac. I mean, uh, Zach, sorry. Um, <laughs> my little brother, folks, is just over from Australia to do a bit of a tour of the UK and Europe. And he's going to listen to the podcast. So he did ask for a shout out. So Hi, Zach. There you go. There's a shout out. Now get back to your backpacking or whatever it is you're doing. Um, so, yeah, out of the blue, James Fox, uh, narrated by Peter Coyote. Is it Coyote or Coyote? First one, I think. Yeah. Coyote. Yeah. I'm, do you know, ever since I started this podcast, it's like, is it Susan Go? Susan Goff? Oh, is it, it's like, listen, it's Peter C. Okay. Um, really cool <laughs> voice. Um, to his friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Peter C to his friends. Pete to his friends. Um, this documentary is one I've not watched for years. Uh, and I do mean years. It's available via various different platforms. I would always suggest, if possible, pay for it, rent it, buy it if you can. But it is available for free on, on various YouTube like channels such as YouTube. Um, it starts off with a shot of the Hubble telescope, which, you know, given just recently we've had the, the upgrade of the James Timely. Webb. Yeah, very timely. Um, talks about the Drake equation, um, you know, 
Drake equation being Dan, that's going to be one of your your ones. Oh yeah, do you want me to give you the Drake yeah. equation? Succinctly, succinctly, yeah. Tell <laughs> us to it out real quick. Just, you know, the number. I on. can do it, and it's just not going to be as good. Be like, <laughs> <laughs> aliens. Is it so? Is the number of uh, civilizations in the Milky Way that are capable of producing signals that we can detect on Earth uh, times the rate at which stars are capable of supporting life uh, in our galaxy times the fraction of those stars that have a planet or planets times the average number of planets per planetary system that have an environment that can support life times the fraction of those planets that can support life on which life actually develops times the fraction of those planets with life where intelligent life develops times the fraction of those intelligent civilizations that develop technology for communication and then finally times the average lifetime of those civilizations that develop technology for communication so that gives us a very kind of big number still but many years ago like about 10 years ago, we, we didn't think there were any planets outside the solar system. Now we're up to about 10,000 exoplanets. So that equation, the result of that has changed dramatically since this film was made. Yeah. And it's, I couldn't help but think the whole time this was uh, introduced, because it's a couple of minute long introduction. Um, while they're t- discussing the Drake equation, we're seeing these beautiful shots, we're seeing some interspl- uh, interspliced clips. It was very late 90s, early 2000s. And it was almost like an MTV type production, you know, where everything where where CGI was just coming in and computer graphics were getting a little bit better. And it was almost like, yeah, someone was just having a lot of fun with the computer systems, um, <laughs> but a funky music behind it, overlapping videos. But if you if you date it, it's, it's tw- over 20 years old now. If you remember, though, it was a step up from traditional UFO documentaries that you would see. And I was like, yeah, I liked it. Got a little bit of a vibe and thought, it takes you back to that kind of time, what you know, that those early two thousands. Um, thinking though, do you think this was being aimed at a bit of a younger audience? So we're we're probably just at the time of DVDs or just before DVDs, maybe two thousand two. Round it was round about yeah, you could get DVDs at that point, and obviously yeah. VHS videotapes. Nathan, is this being aimed at a younger audience to get them into the UFO subject? I mean, I think so. I, I just wish James Foss could make a, a good documentary. I mean, he just, <laughs> uh, just the guy. I mean, it's it's excellently done. Uh, I agree with you. It's definitely dated. Uh, you know, looking back and having obviously lived through that time myself, uh, it uh, I think did a did a very solid job of kind of laying out a, a good argument. And as far as the graphics and the the music, you know, it's distracting to us now. Sort of how I think about it at the time. I think it would have been really kind of engaging because that's just what people were doing uh you know trying to capture imaginations and things like that uh, and, and clearly he had kind of uh it, the things that he highlighted in terms of what was coming out or what was being discussed and you know, i think he was trying to kind of throw some weight behind some of these uh late 90s early aught movements that were happening around that time dan we start to see some of those names don't we as well like uh, your corsos edgar mitchells and they're probably talking head clips now that we're very, very familiar with because we've seen them replayed so many times in the time since this documentary came out. But many people probably saw these for the first time when they were watching this because there was still no social media. The internet was still young and burgeoning. The internet speeds were still pretty pretty low, pretty poor. So there was no streaming services. So this would have been the type of thing you would have picked up at a blockbuster, a global video um, you know, HMV, Virgin Mega Stores, wh- whatever your kind of local places were, and yeah. I could imagine the different types of covers. And I, I used to remember going to to those types of stores, 
uh, to get like wrestling VHS, and it was funny UFO stuff and wrestling was always next to each other for some reason. <laughs> I always I always remember that, and um, you would get like the you know the oh, what you what you call it the race Antilly is it race Antilly with the or the I'm autopsy yeah the autopsy the alien autopsy yes. video that would always be there wouldn't it you would always see Classic. that and yeah it's like really alien Cor- correct me if I'm wrong but that was presented by Anton Deck in the UK or did they do a spin-off movie or something like that movie yeah it was yeah. They, they done like the movie they were the guys in it yeah um, mm. I've never seen it and don't plan on seeing it either no, to be me honest neither. no <laughs> so right next to Wrestlemania you had uh, alien autopsy yeah, is that, that was that it was like they were literally mm-hmm. there but the, all those mm-hmm. videos and VHS and DVDs had the same types of covers so it was just the same kind of things repackaged so obviously James Fox set out to do something here a little bit different at the time. And I've got a quote from James Fox at the end. I asked him the other day, what do you think of this piece now, 20 years on? And he's gave me a little summary of what he, he's really honest about it as well. Um, so we get it's the title. interesting. Because yeah. it's this almost watched like a, a prototype for the phenomena, right? Like you, you could see the structure was there and he mm-hmm. had just updated it. Um, and like you say, the CG got a bit better and there's, that's not really present in this at all. Yeah, the, the out of the blue title screen comes up after three or four minutes and I've put lovely early computer graphics. It's the kind of thing that if, <laughs> if, if Dan presented to me now, I'd be sending him back to the drawing board going, no, 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 no. That's a really that's a really poor effort. Um, so first discussion point, okay. Early on, we see some really interesting videos of various different UFOs that have been captured. Remembering we're looking at the peak of 90s video camera footage or, or 80s kind of footage here. And it was always of a certain standard. You can picture it right now in your head. It's got the timestamp in the bottom right-hand corner. You know, it's got the time, and it's usually some woodland area with an object and the distance you can't really make out. Has that standard changed 20 years later? And and are we too harsh on camera phone footage? Because now that we have camera phone footage, everyone, the, the general argument is that we should have better evidence than we do with everyone having these wonderful cameras in our pockets. But do we underappreciate the footage that we have now? Dan, I'll go to you with that one first. Yeah, I, I think we do. You you look at the cameras that are present in in home video camera systems, and those things they have good optical zooms on them because they were bigger boxy bodies, you know. On our smartphones, that's not the case. These things are made to take portrait shots of our pets and of our family and things like that. So when you, you know, bring up the the standard lens on, say, an iPhone, that's a wide angle lens. So if something's in front of you, kind of given this peacocking display having visited you know the earth from somewhere else you're barely going to catch it it's going to be just a dot in the sky so i think some of the footage that was present in this was actually better than some of the things you see posted to you know to facebook or to something like that where people kind of go wow i saw this thing and you know it's it's hard to prove that it's not the international space station or a satellite or something like that there's really not much data there nathan yeah i completely agree uh i i think we're also kind of desensitized to just all of the footage that we see with the, with the cell phone, smartphones, uh, go outside on a full moon night, take a photo of the moon. It will look nothing like what you see with your own eyes and you'll actually be pretty frustrated, <laughs> even if you've got a great camera. Uh, so I think, you know, we, we've come a long way in the, the kind of ubiquitous nature of what we can do. But uh, I do tend to think that some of the older clips that we saw from those VHS tapes and whatnot are, you know, pretty compelling. You know, it's also interesting though, looking back at those, in hindsight, kind of where we are now and with uh, what I would guess call the Mick West effect or something, you know, you're looking at all those going, well, maybe that's a, you know, maybe that's this or that, you know, your mind is going through this checklist of things that you might try to discount whatever that footage might be. 
Uh, and that's just, I think that's kind of the, I would say that's the base where everybody begins now. We're, we're, we're kind of starting with a position of it's probably not something exceptional and we're going through this checklist and then, and then it kind of becomes like a little bit forgettable in a way. Uh, unfortunately, you know, I, we kind of just put it in the old, in the file drawer with all the other videos that we're just bombarded with every day. So I can go on my phone just now and download any number of apps that can turn my sitting room or kitchen into like a, an FX studio where there's explosions going off and, you know, Spider-Man can swing by and all that kind of stuff. As happens in the north of England. As normally happens in my bathroom, yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, though, back in the 90s and 80s, it was much, much harder for anyone to fake and add things in after production, as easy as any of us can do it now on our phones. So is it almost more credible when you see this kind of footage, as shaky cam as it can still be and as out of place as it can look? It took a much larger skill set, didn't it? And time and money and equipment to to add an effect in afterwards. So some of this footage, like you say, it, again, it's odd and it looks really old, but is it better than what we, we probably see now? There's there's a, a big portion of it is understanding what we're seeing as well. You know, in, in this, there was a part where they were talking about fuzzy videos and things like that. And when we look at the Tic Tac video, sure, it's fuzzy, but it's not using a camera as we're used to seeing. Mm. So there's a whole bunch of education that goes along with seeing that video and actually understanding what you're seeing, you know, the kind of the white heart, the black heart, that kind of stuff. And, and I think that area is where, you know, debunkers and believers both, they kind of find their their catnip, so to speak, because it's just, yeah, they, they exploit the lack of education out there, I think. Yeah. And when you, well, when you're looking at that, the VHS stuff, it's so bizarre, uh, the behavior, the characteristics of what you're seeing, that couple of the saucer shapes that were in those uh, pieces of footage, like they're so bizarre looking just generally that, you know, your mount, your, I think your default mode is like, you know, I, I don't know what that is. I, that's probably something just, you know, prosaic and I can kind of explain it away. But it's remarkable. I mean, it, you know, like that's just like, and I think too about what people say when they actually have these experiences that they see the saucers, they see, you know, sometimes very, very close and they're immediately kind of second guessing what they saw in person. So we're, you know, we're removed at least once removed from that personal moment and we're doing the same thing. Um, I do think, it, you know, it's pretty compelling stuff though. I like those old, I like that old clip stuff. I, I think you're right into your point about the CGI and it's probably less likely that they did a lot of editing. I think that's probably true. I think you've got your own bias as well when you see a video of, of any of this stuff. And I've always said, like, what would real look like? Because imagine the day we do get to see one of these pilots has filmed one of these things next to them, and it would just look so different to what any of us could have imagined. So in your head, you look at someone's footage and you think, yeah, that's not what I thought it would look like. There's a, there's a famous picture, and you, you guys will know better than me off the top of your head um full disclosure i had a night out last night so i'm a little bit croaky and my memory's kind of fuzzy but you know it's it looks like a a bell on its side but it's flying through the air it's not oh, yeah the, yeah it's not the mcminnville one is it that's not or a, no i, I know which know, one you mean do you know the one i mean yeah and yeah i always think that, that looks like someone has thrown like a bell you would get on a desk in the air and taken a picture but why wouldn't one of these craft potentially look a bit like that you know, when it's flying through the air. So just because I don't see that as a sexy representation of, oh, that's not a cool-looking flying saucer or black triangle, doesn't mean to say it's not something really incredible when you can easily dismiss it as well. 
what it does move on to though is is my favorite case i've mentioned for, for many many times is the phoenix lights event and it gives a really nice recap of the phoenix knights and thinking as well this was at this point less than 10 years removed from the event still something that was pretty fresh it's something that a lot of people might not have known about outside of the US or if you were in those kind of UFO circles. Um, listener Steve asked me why this was my favourite case and I just thought I would answer this really quickly. A few things. So it's a mass sighting. The, the number of witnesses are unrelated and in different areas but all looking at the same thing, sharing the same testimony, especially of the object flying over the city, blacking out the stars. I always thought that was really amazing to hear from lots of different people. And then obviously the cover-up that followed and also was torn apart by Governor Fife Symington, who instigated it, made a mockery of it. The people who hated that, it ruined his political career. And then he came out years later and basically said, yeah, I was, I was told to do that. So I want to ask you both a quick question. Um, given this was the mid-90s, okay, would there not have been substantial data for the event that we've still never heard about, given the level of military technology that there would have been? So... I keep seeing people with the US hearings that let's hear about Roswell, da 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 da. And it's like, well, Roswell's going to be very limited in what we've got, and it'll be files and paper. And is it a craft still somewhere? Are there bits of something, Lockheed or Boeing or whatever? But the Phoenix Lights, surely they would have had ra radar, potentially satellite tracking, all kinds of things on this object that would be relatively good, incredible data that they could bring forward now. Would you, Dan, what were your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, I, I find it hard to believe they wouldn't have had satellites up there taking imagery where you could prove or disprove this event. It's one of the ones that you could put on the table, and I mean, if you if you prove it, you can prove the cover up. So there's almost a lot riding on an event like this. So for that reason, it wouldn't surprise me if they just kind of ignore it and sweep it under the rug, because you have the event, then you have the flare drop after the event, and a lot of people kind of conflate the two. But if we can prove that the flare drop happened because of that earlier event, it just raises so many questions um, in terms of questioning the authority uh, that I, I think it would be a dangerous precedent for them to bring up in their eyes anyway. I wish they would bring it up because, yeah, I, I think the cover up is the easiest thing to prove here. Yeah, Nathan? I agree, it, particularly if the object was as large as eyewitness accounts uh, claimed it to be. I mean, a very massive object. I mean, how would that not have been seen on the nearby uh, air traffic control tower? And and I would imagine like recorded in some way because it I mean, it's a flight safety risk. And there and just as we all know the Kurt Russell story, he's coming yeah. into the area. I mean, he he saw it coming in. So you know, there's got to be some data there. Uh, also, Phoenix is not that far from military bases and airfields that are in that area, part of the country. I mean, you're telling me they don't keep track of things that are kind of nearby or particularly things of, of that incredible size. So I, I agree. And it begs the question, what kind of historical data do we have? You know, how is, how is it retained? I think I recall m remembering Jeremy Corbell saying something about, you know, there's like a there's like a warehouse somewhere where all this stuff just gets like sent to. It's like, what's in that warehouse? I mean, surely this stuff is there. And to your point, Dan, I mean one among many examples and events where if we just kind of took that folder out and put out the evidence on the table, we would kind of not be, we'd not be having this conversation anymore. Dan Phoenix lights. If that happened 10 years later, mid two thousands with the first camera phones were out, or even if it happened now, do you think that would be as big an event 
or or a bigger event is that something that would be that oh it definitely happened or do you think we would still get the it would be grainy video it'd be night time so you're going to get a lot of just kind of shapes moving against the sky but with that many people would that ignite the interest in the subject or would the results be exactly the same i i think it would ignite the interest especially given the political kind of interest in this at the moment, you know, you're not going to have someone like Governor Five Symington making a mockery of it and making a mockery of the people who saw it and making them feel like they're being idiots. And you know, you're you're going to have a bunch of grown-ups at the helm that are actually in- interested in solving this and not bringing forward. Well, he he had an alien come out with him, or someone dressed as an alien mm. come out with him, and then reveal their face and just kind of went, "It's a bit of fun." Whereas now, like Nathan's talking about, we're we're considering this from a flight safety angle, from a national security angle. And that stuff is all at the forefront right now. So I think if it happens now, we get thousands of videos that all get kind of pulled into this mass uh, mass data store, I guess. And yeah, it, it proves the case, essentially. I, I actually wrote in my notes here that I wish something like this would happen these days. I, I love you had to correct yourself, Dan, that you said an alien walked out with him. Oh, well, someone dressed <laughs> as an alien. And it was like, yeah, thanks for you. You, you never know these up. days. You never know. I, I posted it's something true. to Twitter the other day and, and people took it seriously. And it was a, a joke about the CIA using highlighters that were black and not realizing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what the CIA would say? All you hear is all hearsay. Apparently, as the line goes. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The Phoenix Lights event. And I, I was thinking just this before. If it happened now, Sky News, and I'm sure other news companies would be the same, but I always heard that Sky News several years ago claimed they could be anywhere on the planet with a camera within three minutes. And you think if something like that did happen, surely the news cameras would be there on the spots if something was going over a town or city, getting mass reports. And you see it now, don't you, that if there's if there's like awful something awful like a terrorist attack, within minutes people's camera phones are filming it and news companies start picking yeah. it up and relaying people's live images people instagram live it they go live on twitter all that kind of stuff so you would think there would be a mass social media live event happen and yeah that that could hopefully be is something like that likely to happen again probably question. not <laughs> I, I mean we we talk about them being aware of us and our capabilities all the time mm. and i'm not saying that you know the visitors are sat there kind of yelling at tim cook as he announces a new iphone kind of going oh the resolution's gone up we have to hide a little bit more now uh but they, they'll certainly be uh they wouldn't want to leave a big footprint they they wouldn't want to well why why fly about over phoenix in the mid 90s anyway then like because right. it wasn't the most subtle thing to do and that's always a bit of a it's an, it's an odd thing where they don't want to be seen and they, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll show us what they want to show us. Why fly about almost stealthily to the point where people could just make out the shape and kind of hide in, in plain sight? Shout out to Ross Coulthard. Nice. But, you know, Good drop. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'm sobering up now. But like, why, why even expose yourself to that extent or is that part of that trickster frustration aspect to the phenomenon where, yeah, we're, we're, we're just here at the edge of your vision? But mm-hmm. that, that Doctor Who episode where you can see these things but they're at the corner of your eye and then when you look, they're not there. And is it that, that they're just always out of reach? Yeah, I think this is one of those things that we're really going to have to uh, work hard to understand. You know, that uh, to me, as this story continues to unfold and become more uh, socially acceptable, we will look back at a lot of events in, in the history of this uh, topic and we'll kind of think, oh, you know, that was... You know, that sort of kicked off another sort of chain of events that then led to this, that, or the other. 
you know, but then again, you know, the sort of the other side of that argument for me is, you know, human beings are very good at narrative construction, you know, so we, we're very good at looking back at seemingly completely disconnected events and, and connecting those dots and saying, look, there's a story here. Uh, this led to this and that. So, you know, I think I, I can see it from both perspectives. Uh, I'm very frustrated that we haven't had a, a sighting or an event to that scale. Uh, but it, at the same time, it you know very well could be just kind of part of how this is going to unfold. It's going to be one of those, you know, really uh, enigmatic events that maybe started off some conversations or started off some uh, you know some intense interest from those who experienced it, and that then catalyzed others to pursue this more vigorously. I mean, clearly that event was so impactful that James Fox made an entire movie about it. Uh, seven years later in 2009, I know what I saw. Uh, and you can see why just the, the number of witnesses and, uh, you know, it's very, it's a very, very compelling story. You, you mentioned it, Andy, I think when uh, you interviewed Randall Nicholson. About I was the literally aerial. going to say oh, yeah. that. Yeah, go, yeah, go on, go you, on. You go ahead. You did the interview. I'll let you say well, it. Go no, for it. Just, <laughs> and I'm sure it's the same thing, but just the idea that maybe the aerial phenomenon incident happened at a time where it's not the, that point in time that's relevant. It's what's going to happen down the line and the people that are influenced and that it's only that now the documentary is being made that the story should be told and now is the right time to tell that story. And maybe the Phoenix Lights, it's the same sort of thing that it's only going to be 25, 30 years later where in Congress we see some satellite imagery or we hear about data or it's confirmed actually something was there. And maybe that's the point that story becomes more relevant and a kind of bigger part in the disclosure movement that it's taken that long for it to be important. And yeah, same could be said maybe for Roswell and any other event that it happens when it happens, but the real impact isn't seen for, for decades and decades down the line. So I take it that's what you were going to bring up. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. You know, the, these things are seeded in essentially at the beginning of the age of communication for us. And then as we start being connected through things like the internet and mobile phones, the story kind of gets passed around and it starts catalyzing. It's something a lot more meaningful. Mm. Yeah. It's in a way it's sort of mater it's materializing over time. It's, yeah. it's incredibly subtle in the past and, and, and you get these little glimpses and these various different seemingly disconnected moments and, and experiences and, as time seems to move forward, those events become more clearly understood, more crystalline, and then new events emerge, which are even clearer. And I mean, this may just be the trajectory that this this entire sort of story is going to take. Um, and I, I, to me, it's a I, I like this idea, you know, because it's a very subtle way of bringing this new reality in, into our human society. It's not hitting us with a hammer. It's really you know, kind of slowly acclimating us to, to this grander story here. So I, I like an analogy and I'm thinking that maybe it's like if at the side of a road you planted a seed for a tree and the tree starts growing, but it doesn't interfere with the traffic of the road for a long, long time. But after 30, 40 or 50 years, the tree gets bigger and it's still not on the road, but you notice it more. But then one day the branches are going to hold over the road. They're going to bend over. They're going to start hitting the cars and people take notice and have to do something about it. So maybe it's just that point where it just takes a point for something that's been there forever to become more noticeable to you have to do something about it. And maybe at that point, that's where these become relevant. I like that. So, so at the moment you would say that we're at the point where the branches of the phenomena are hitting our car windscreens and we're going, mm -hmm. Oh crap, this is a bit dangerous. Do you know what? No, they're not hitting the car windscreens. They're hitting the top of the bus. 
So oh, the buses okay. going along that are double deckers <laughs> mm-hmm. is hitting those. So only some of us are noticing, okay, but those of us who dare to sit at the top of the bus, the, the car scum don't the notice. The cool it kids. Yet. Yeah, the cool <laughs> kids who sit at the top of the bus, yeah. Um, any more on Phoenix Lights before we move on? I just had that it was a really good example of, of you know, we, we talk about these cover-ups all the time, that there are these kind of shady men in the shadows kind of trying to hide everything. And actually, in this instance, it wasn't needed. Five Simonson did everything that they would have been there to do, and he didn't need any influence at all. We we perpetuate this stigma ourselves without any mm-hmm. men in black. That's right. Um, we hear a lot of scientists and experts coming up next discussing why great distance is a big issue when it comes to visitations from beings from other galaxies. So, again, this is us looking at a problem in a very human way, and I think a lot of scientists and academics have this same issue, don't they? It's almost like a roadblock for them. And I find that, again, I've said before on the podcast, it's incredible that so many scientific minds can be so so reserved and like blocked off from looking beyond what we can do now given what's happened over like the hundreds of thousands of years of civilizations and that example of standing on a shoreline and thinking, how can you cross that ocean? Well, that's just us right now looking across the universe going, yeah, but we can't do that. But then someone comes along in like a, you know, combustion engine and suddenly they can fly the oceans. And that's just as someone's ahead of us with that, they've solved that problem. You know, is that too simple an argument though? And are these people right that it really is such an existential leap that, maybe we can't travel those distances and something else couldn't either. Uh, go ahead, Nathan. <laughs> well, I, I completely disagree with that notion that, you know, that we just can't do it. I think a lot of folks don't realize how much creativity is required in science. You, you know, you do to do good science and, and really push the edges of scientific discovery. You have to be very creative and in, in asking the right kinds of questions and creating the right kinds of tests for these ideas. And it's, it's just not very easy to do, particularly if we're talking about ideas that aren't commonly accepted. So you just don't have a lot to sort of build off of there. I did like the point in the movie that they uh, hinted at that there's this sort of cycle of um, what is known and then like what the imagination says, what if we could do this and how that then pushes the science later on. And it's, it's kind of typically generational, you know, so you, you, you kind of are born into the state of the world you see what science is telling you is like what we can do, what we're capable of. And as a young person who's not bound as much by those, uh, you know, constraints of a career or whatever, you're looking at that and going, Ooh, what if we could do X, Y, Z? What if we could just warp this or whatever? You're asking crazy questions. Well, those kids eventually become adults and scientists who end up pursuing those ideas. And that does push our science forward. So it is a, it's kind of this, it's frustrating, but it's also part of, I think the way, our knowledge just grows. Uh, you know, we're not going to be able to get to some radical discovery. We rarely do anyway, just purely by accident. We're kind of getting there by pushing against the known uh, and, and so, sometimes violently. You know, sometimes we see something that's happening and we, we're so antagonistic to that that we can't accept it as truth. And we're going to be those pioneers who just kind of really push back against that and we get these incredible discoveries or, or we don't. Yeah, I'm sure when humans took the first flight, you know, there were a bunch of people that said, this is impossible, it's not going to happen, so on and so forth. And actually, it come down to two guys in a field doing it on their own and changing the entire world. You know, you go back 50 years before that point, and everyone just has a complete different mindset as to what's possible. And suddenly, just by seeing that thing, a whole bunch more people got involved and developed the planes that we know today. But fundamentally, we're still using the same kind of technology, you know, DJ would 
explain it, that everything we make is based on a wing shape. So to see something that doesn't use that and to have these kids growing up who are now starting to step into labs who think, you know, what if, what if this is possible? Let's just try. Let's go down this road and see what we can do. Uh, it, it's going to move us down that path of precision that we've been on since, you know, the transistor was made and everything's getting smaller and smaller and we're get, gaining control over those things. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're going to be, you know, jump ahead 50 years and we're going to have some insane technologies. There's a reason that OSAP was looking at things in this way. I always love that picture of the left and right hand side comparison and one of them is the iPhone, but on the other side, it's got the Walkman, it's got the personal computer, the diary and all this technology and all this different, all these things we had. And then it's like, Steve Jobs and co came along and went, yeah, we'll put it in this. And it's in this tiny little device. And you look at the next iteration of that, what, again, 20 years later, look at those generations where you've got Elon Musk thinking, I can put a chip in everyone's head and it's going to have all that information. You won't need the physical device anymore. And, you know, or you could do it with the Google glasses became a thing almost and Apple glasses, you know, is, is that the way it's going to go? Who knows? But all these different technologies that just sometimes don't make it and sometimes do. Um, shout out to mini discs that were around for far too short. I love my mini disc player. <laughs> love those yeah. things. Yeah, yeah they, they were just far too short a flame. But you know, RIP to the mini disc. Um, <laughs> some of the younger listeners will be going mini disc. Gone, gone but not forgotten. Yeah, yeah gone Google but not forgotten. Yeah, Google it. Um, but yeah, so uh, astronaut Gordon Cooper talks about the film he saw that was really interesting, um, but he never got to actually see the physical raw film footage. Um, but talking about one of the landings, and there's a few things like that in there as well. Edgar Mitchell, who was a key name in the Wilson Davis memo, um, he discusses the different cover-ups and the pressure that officials were under to keep the UFO secret under wraps. Devil's advocate, okay, let's let's be for a moment, and Dan, I think you struggle with this sometimes, so I'm going to come to you first. Let's be on the side of the officials here. Why is it the right thing to keep all this information from the public? Did you know that podcast advertising is way more effective than display advertising? With 67% of listeners remembering brands and 63% making a purchase after hearing them. Whether you want to diversify your ad spend, add a new marketing stream or test out podcast ads, Zencaster's creator network makes it easy for brands to connect with podcasters. Zencaster's mission is to make podcast advertisements as easy and accessible to business owners as Google or Facebook. Post-read ads like this are the most effective form of podcast advertising. Zencaster works with podcasters to help create unique to them ad spots that create brand awareness and conversion. Zencaster's creator network is the perfect place for you to get into podcast ads and sponsor your favorite creators like me. I've worked with Zencaster now for some time and they truly put the content creators and the listeners at the heart of what they do. As a huge fan of podcasts myself, and I really mean that, I love podcasts. I often buy products or services that I find useful to me based on those pods that I'm listening to. It supports them and there's usually a good discount to go along with it. So if you're interested in sponsoring this show or another podcast with adverts for your business, go to zen.ai forward slash that UFO pod one that's the number one. Or click the link in the description and fill out the contact information so Zencaster can help you bring your business story to life. Well, we've heard that, I mean, on a base level, let's look at what happened with COVID. You know, people ran out, they panicked. You, you wouldn't want this explosive event that just announces that we're not alone in the universe because a lot of people would freak out. So I can see why they would hold it back for that reason. But as well as that, we've been told that this technology is deceptively simple. And we also think that it outputs an enormous amount of power. So if it's simple and, you know, it's used for destruction, we're not looking at two buildings being destroyed in New York now. We're looking at New York disappearing off the map. Mm 
So I can understand why they'd be reluctant to share something like that. But from a more cynical point of view, if the US military had some technology like this, they would want that to be able to rule over everybody else in a nutshell, right? Uh, they, they'd want that power for themselves and for no one else to have it. Nathan, same question. Yeah, I, I to me, I'm in this camp of it's understandable why they would have tried to keep the lid on this that, uh, you know, maybe initially it seemed like something we probably had a, a decent grasp of or, and you kind of hear about this too. There, there were moments in the, in the history here where it looked like they were about to kind of come out and say, you know, here's what's going on. But I think they realized it was much more complex than they initially thought. And to such a degree of complexity that we don't fully quite know what it is. And, uh, you know, from my standpoint, as much as I hate this, you know, we live in you know, highly connected societies. Uh, we, you know, a lot of us have, um, you know, access to things that can do a lot of harm, whether that's just a vehicle you're driving or, you know, if you live in a country, you can buy a firearm You know, you can do some real damage. And I think, you know, the governments have a responsibility to, uh, you know, study this to the, to the extent that they can kind of understand what it is before they then just lay it out on everybody's lap and say, well, good luck, you know, hope everybody can figure this out. We don't really know what it is. Uh, so, you know, hope you have a good day tomorrow at the office and take the kids to school. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so huge. And I, so I do think that that's the reason why it's taken so long to, to get to this point and why we still see that pressure against uh, this coming forward, because I'm not sure that they really have the answers. Staying with you, Nathan, how do you feel when you see astronauts coming out and talking on this subject in terms of being authority figures? I think we've got quite used to to pilots and Navy personnel recently coming out and CIA, you know, intelligence officials coming out more and more. But Gordon Cooper, Edgar Mitchell and, and others that have spoken, Buzz Aldrin um, discusses the subject quite a lot, even now in his, his, his elderly years as well, which is great. Where do you sit as in terms of authority figures like astronauts coming out and chatting on the subject? I think it's great. I, I think that they're, they represent some of the best of, of humanity. Um, they're, you know, often scientists themselves, though they're, they, they've been pilots themselves. They, you know, these are people who are highly trained, who uh, are very rational. They're, they're excellent under pressure. You can't be an astronaut if you're going to panic in a, in a situation that's very stressful. So these are people that, you know, that you would want to trust with your kids. You know, like, I mean, they're, 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 they're stand, upstanding people in, in, in society. And I think that, uh, the more that they can come forward with their personal experiences uh, and even their speculations. I think that that's incredibly valuable to the broader acceptance of this story and narrative in, in our culture. So I, I definitely welcome that, even if they have not had an experience where at least open, and I think we're seeing more, a little bit more of that now, they're open to this being something that could in fact be here, uh, you know, even though they themselves have never seen anything in space. Dan? Uh well, I, I was just going to throw in, I completely agree what Nathan said there about these being, you know, very highly respected people, very experienced people. But there's there's some woo that comes into the subject through some of these astronauts where I think it was Edgar Mitchell actually tried some kind of telepathy experiments and remote viewing experiments as mm -hmm. he was off the earth. And I don't think we've ever seen the results of those, but it speaks to how open-minded these pilots are. I think we all expect astronauts that when they go up there that they're going to look out the window and like I suppose any of us would just be glued to the window wouldn't we and be hoping to see oh there's a saucer flying by well there's a, a fleet of motherships over there just behind the moon <laughs> and is that what it would look like and it's probably not but 
you would imagine or hope they would all see certain things and some of the the more modern astronauts i always get mixed up whether it was tim peak or chris hadfield had been quite derogatory about the ufo subject in terms of i think that the claim was you know you're stupid if you think that oh that was hadfield things. yeah hadfield yeah i thought so um and and he's entitled to his opinion, but I just I just feel someone who's went up there and seen the enormity of space, you know, for themselves, which must be just the most mind blowing thing to see and comprehend. I don't think it's something that any of us could just go up and see and not be like, you have your brain melt just because it's, it'd be so hard to like, imagine what you're actually looking at this void. But to come yeah. out and just say, oh, you're an idiot if you think any of these things are. So it's really interesting to have that comparison and buzz aldrin has talked about monoliths on different planets hasn't he and again you would look at the circle these people run in and their connections but then do they get fed a little bit of misinformation do their own imaginations run away with them sometimes as well and they hear what they want to hear with an interest in the subject but but yeah it's great to hear these these people obviously many of them now having passed away um it would be nice if some of the the, the present modern astronauts would come out and get more involved in the subject in terms of, you know, let's talk about UFOs. And even if one of them came out, I suppose that would be huge if, if NASA could come out and say, well, we've got people on board ISS just now and we're, they're reporting an object because we see enough footage of it, don't we? Yeah, we, we have um, Tim Peake in the UK who recently spoke up on a morning TV show. He was asked about it and he, he spoke with respect on the subject and he took it seriously. That was very encouraging to see because I, I contacted him last year and he was a bit cagey to speak about it just didn't really believe it whereas now he's deferring to his colleagues who have seen these things and when i say colleagues i mean you know service members Hmm. um and taking them seriously instead of deriding them like chris hadfield did um i mean andy that that what you just said there it would be amazing if we had that kind of footage from the iss i mean think about the impact that would have on society just to be able to put it all out there because i think that that's almost like the tied up with a neat bow sort of image you know you're already in space we're in space there they are they're zooming up next to the, the porthole I mean, that that's kind of the classic experience that, yep. that people may might be looking for so you know it, it does beg the question why you know why not have that and how much uh screening takes place of what is being you know recorded or shared from from what is from, from these platforms that operate in space with NASA being more involved now, and we would hope they're pouring over this historical archival footage they must have, and Dan, we, we discussed this, didn't we? I yeah. would love if NASA would come out and say, look, all these videos, the tether incident, you know, any number of things that could be something, and they came out and said, look, this one is definitely ice crystals, and here's why. This one is just junk in the background, and here's why. However, here are some actual videos that we truly think something anomalous is captured on camera. And we're investigating it. And do you know what? If, if we can get to that point, I would be happy as, as in terms of progress. People can, I think, want too much for NASA to come out. As if NASA is a sentient being in itself and comes out and says, yes, we know the aliens are true, are real, and we know where they are, and we see them all the time. NASA is like the government. It's a department. It's a company. It's, it's made up of employees and offices and personnel and a board of directors and people making decisions. And there's no there's no file in the office is there that says, oh, don't go in that one. That's got the alien stuff in it. So hopefully, I think there's still that really romantic notion that NASA could be really involved going forward in, in the prog- progress of this subject. And that's what I hope the James Webb Telescope, I'd be really happy if in terms of a, a real disclosure push, if you want to call it that, they spotted something with the James Webb. You know, like the we heard that the rumors of Biden being handed a brief and it was like, we think we've seen something and blah, blah, blah. Maybe something like that does happen. 
And the only confirmation we get for many years is we think we've seen something with a telescope. We think it's a, a an object that's been made by something way out in the distance and we have to investigate, but it's going to take some time. And that would be a, a nice soft drip disclosure, I think, for the public because then people go, oh, NASA think they've found something, but really far away. And, and we've had a kind of almost a similar thing. You know, remember when uh, we found the, I think it was phosphine on Venus and we thought that that, kind of said that there was life there and mm-hmm. since then we found actually it's probably not what we thought it was but it speaks to the process of science that you'll get that drip feed you'll get that peer review you'll get people confirming it it's not going to be there, there was a document floating around when james webb uh when they put up the initial pictures i think you said it to me andy um and just said you know this is probably fake but what if how cool would mm. that be and and it was basically saying that they'd found something already and the big flag that went up for me was just literally how quickly that had happened. I, I think they would try and keep something like that under wraps. And you you get kind of leaky places all over the world as different labs checked. But uh, yeah, there, there would be a process and it would take years and we'd acclimatize to it. So by the time we got to confirming it, everyone on Earth would just kind of be living with the fact that we're not alone. Yeah, this was the idea they'd pointed something at Tabby Star, which their That's right. hypothesis might be there's a, there's a Dyson sphere been built around it. <laughs> some mm-hmm. sort of like physical object and they've as a as as an, as an object of interest they've pointed the james webb at it and found something and obviously it's a heavily redacted uh, document but it came out and yeah and it's one of those it's probably not real it would be very easy to mock up but that's also what real would look like i imagine given it's just a document so imagine biden did get handed something and it's like what do you want to do and it was a case of for now let's just keep this to ourselves that would be a pretty cool way for me, though, of having that kind of disclosure to the public of, because then I don't think it's a huge leap to, there might be things visiting here as well. And I think the general public at that point would start asking those questions and be more open to those conversations, because you just then bring things incrementally closer to home, don't you? Yeah, at the moment, it's nice and safe, right? Uh, Tom Tom alluded to it in an interview, he said that, you know, we keep talking about these things as if they're from other planets, but that puts them really far away. And we don't have to be scared that these things are coming to our homes in the night and take us, you know, it, it's nothing we have to be concerned with, but the reality seems to be that they're here and that's, that's a much scarier thing to face. So bringing it much closer to home, then we hear of warheads being shot down by saucers, firing beams of light at rockets. Um, we are, apparently this footage exists um, and these things are flying thousands of miles an hour alongside rockets documents are then shown that confirm the conclusion was it was potentially an extraterrestrial craft involved and the footage was taken away and not seen again and um, maybe this is a sort of footage that would end up in some of these classified briefings you know it might be something from the 80s and 90s that generals are your rubios your warners your gillibrands are seeing now of look here's a, a missile that actually is being shot down by this object next to it and we don't know what that is um that would be pretty cool. Uh, we see a much younger looking Robert Salas discussing the incidents uh, we know of, like those at Mal- Malmstrom, where nuclear missiles have been interfered with by UFOs. I want to ask you, Nathan, why do we hear of some rockets being shot down or disarmed, yet hundreds, if not thousands of incidents happen every year, including nuclear tests, and nothing happens? And obviously, Lou Elizondo made that point himself, didn't he? That people wait on, you know, if a nuclear war happened, don't worry, the aliens will save us. And it's like, well, they didn't stop all these other tests and, you know, that are being carried out all the time. So why did they do it sometimes, but then others they just allow to happen? Right. Yeah. I, I And I know that Salas kind of lands on this uh, sort of argument that this is them, you know, sort of telling us not to play with these kinds of toys, not to 
pursue new nuclear power to dismantle our warheads and that kind of thing. And, and, you know, to your point, Andy, I, I think that's kind of the really rosy view of, of that encounter. Um, to me, it really just, it's an illustration of this, of the high strangeness of the phenomenon. It's, you know, yes, it's a flexing of their muscles and it's, Oh, look what they can do. They're very capable, can do pretty much what, you know, anything that they, they wish to do with our technology. Um, but I don't think we can take another step, another leap from that and say, oh, they're, you know, they're going to protect us from an all out, you know, sort of Holocaust or, 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 you know, reactors melting down or whatever, because, you know, clearly that hasn't happened. There's been a lot of loss of life in over time with our experimentation with this technology and they're not stepping in each, each time and saying, whoa, no, not, this is a bridge too far. You know, I, I just think that that's a, you know, a, a very generous perspective on their motivations um, that is probably heavily influenced by our own biases, knowing how incredibly destructive these technologies are. Mm-hmm. Dan? We, we always talk about the, the idea of a more advanced civilization encountering a less advanced one. And we, we think again, anthropomorphically like about human history and, you know, the, the Spanish encountering the Mayans and so on and so forth and how that rolled out. But I always like to remind people that though the general kind of broad stroke there it seems to be that the more advanced civilization will wipe out the lesser one there there are loads of cases where basically the the natives were helping uh the advanced civilization kind of do their thing so it's not as clear cut as they they're gonna kind of you know wipe out the the less advanced civilization but there's certainly an argument to be made that in those cases where the less advanced civilization has survived they survived because they had warning because they had time to prepare. And that's kind of where we are now. I think we, we can admit that this is real. We can prepare, we can start tracking these things um, or we can bury our heads in the sand. And when they show up and they start, you know, turning off these missiles again, um, we're, we're screwed in a nutshell (laughs) because they don't have any way. I say they, you know, when, when the 10 missiles were shut down at Malmstrom had a nuclear attack been launched on the USA, there would be no protection against that whatsoever. And though it might be an innocent thing and a way to demonstrate, hey, we're in full control, we can stop you doing these things if you want. Um, it's dangerous to us. It's really dangerous. And they might not be aware of how dangerous that is. Why not just go around and disable all the nukes worldwide permanently? I, I see it more as a demonstration of how powerless we are in the face of them, as opposed to them saying they're going to save us or anything like that. That kind of thing doesn't make me laugh but it makes me concerned because it's it's a little naive to think that anyone is here to help us we we always talk about you know stephen greer says they're benevolent other people say they're malevolent and truly the, it's probably a spectrum like it is with humanity you know you couldn't what, say that you, yeah, what about on. the potential though that we always think that they're, they're showing us something but what if they themselves are testing their own equipment to can we turn these off and that for them but it's, it's a test in itself of yeah that worked yeah, quite possibly. And and we, we heard from, I think it was uh, the Italy cases in Unidentified, mm-hmm. where they said literally that the only way to harm UFOs is when they're in a certain mode and to hit them with depleted uranium shells. We're talking nuclear material. So they could have just been trying to figure out a way to disarm us. We've often joked that them coming down and making us all kind of peaceful hippies and switching off our nukes is a really good way to get us to be defenseless when if they want to take the planet. Right. Fair they enough. have a, an area of effect as well. Maybe it's, uh, you know, not they can't do it sort of unilaterally across the board that when UAP 
as a impact zone of, I don't know, 20, 30 miles or whatever. And that's just what they can do. It's, a, it's an excellent question. Yeah, cool. As we go on the documentary now, it's kind of over halfway. I think it starts to get repetitive, not necessarily in a bad way, but we start to hear from some Russian Air Force people. Um, we hear about different sightings, different experiences. We hear about Rendlesham. We hear about Roswell. And it's kind of standard UFO docu- documentary stuff. I don't necessarily want to sit and go over Rendlesham and Roswell and stuff again. I think they're very well documented cases. They've been talked about quite a lot. Is there anything before we start to kind of wrap up on the the end of the documentary you two would want to bring in that you've got notes on at all? Dan, start with yourself. I mean, so firstly, I'm only going to touch on Rendlesham here because in the segment in the film, they they went to great lengths to say that there were no landing legs on, Mm -hmm. on the aircraft. And then they went on to show indents in the ground that they thought yep. were from uh, from legs. And I was just yep. like, well, which is it? What's going on? There's almost like two different stories here. And uh, it, it tickled me immensely that it was Nick Pope that actually put that forward. Former um, UFO investigator for the MOD, Nick Pope, as his title was. Former, former filing secretary for the MOD. Uh, if people don't know, it was DI-55 that actually did the investigating for the UK, as opposed to Nick Pope. Nick Pope probably filed things, and they went to DI-55 to the actual people that did the work. I, I've always thought that it speaks volumes that Nick himself has never been to Calvin, although he rides his the, that Calvin image and built a career out of it. Um, I know we've discussed that ad nauseum. I have nothing against Nick Pope at all. And let's see, I've went to see him live years ago now uh, doing a talk and a presentation. And he's a really interesting character. But I think the, the general gist, again, folks, with Nick Pope is very short. But if Mulder and Scully had a receptionist outside their office, it would be like the X-Files were about the receptionist outside Mulder and Scully's office. Essentially, that's what it, what it was. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I would say so. Um the documentary went on to highlight NASA's oh, sorry, kind of change or, in stance. What, what, if, um, what if the Ghostbusters just followed Janine? That'd be a pretty cool <laughs> show. Yeah, I, that, can, that, I can yeah. imagine Taika Waititi making that. Yeah, she yeah. takes the call and then they go out, but you just the camera just stays on her for the rest of the episode. That would be, that would be it. Yeah. Pretty cheap show as well. That would work. Um, I, I liked how it emphasized that it's a worldwide phenomena. We had Eisenhower brought up with the whole military industrial complex and mm-hmm. how that was kind of founded in the same the same era that the ufo kind of wave started um it highlighted nasa's shifting shifting stance towards the ufo issue from quite derisive to now we actually have uh, a funded study that's happening uh, that they're gearing up for so that's kind of a sea change there and i i also like that it highlighted the Cometa report uh from france and i'd recommend if people haven't read that go read it because it's as good as the documentary makes out and right on the front cover there is that late coat picture uh where uh, a disc seemingly appeared in one photo that was it, they were taking basically uh a photo every so often and in one of these photos it seems that a disc appeared and we helped kind of release a, a higher resolution version of that uh, with uap media not too long ago so jump on uap media anyone who's listening and have a look at the photo it's a very compelling photo when we didn't conclude on it it is what it is uh ha- have a look and yeah just see how you feel about it nathan uh, anything I, I, well i think the you know fox has done a good job here of making a, a broad argument for the validity of this topic you know to me it's quite impressive uh, and anyone who's studied this uh, for any considerable amount of time you know, can, can kind of spot this as well. There's definitely a there there, even with the sort of limited data that we have. I mean, and keep in mind that a lot of these uh, sort of anecdotes, 
and uh, you know historical accounts and you know from Reagan and Carter and Ford and all these other presidents. I mean, this is stuff that we're just sort of taking at the top level and putting this picture together. There's so much more information that has to exist under that under that surface layer. If we've been able to kind of construct this you know, amount of, uh, of a picture with just that kind of little bit of information, I think that, you know, should be pretty compelling, uh, to anyone. And I think, you know, James does a, an excellent job, you know, trying to methodically lay this out, that it's not just, you know, a couple of weird witness accounts. It's a, it's a broader phenomenon. There's been, you know, very official people who have looked into this. There've been efforts that clearly were designed to fail, there have been efforts that were uh, much more productive. That's, you know, the, the commuter report is an excellent example of that. Um, the only other thing that I, you know, kind of wrote down that other than Nick Pope with an exclamation point when he came on screen was uh, <laughs> Nick Pope. He's very charismatic. I like listening to Nick Pope. Is that like the Metal Gear uh, Solid exclamation point, Nick Pope? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but what really struck me is something that I've, we kind of touched on at the beginning of the, of the conversation, um, you know, going back to Bob Jacobs and uh, Robert Salas and their experiences there, uh, and anyone who's kind of studied those guys a little bit know that they put out a book um, called Confessions, which basically revealed they're both experiencers, you know. So I've been playing with this idea that, of if if, you, if there's no sort of linear time that you know that there's sort of a causality a lot like we think of causality in terms of this happens and then this next moment this thing happens and we're looking at things we're looking at our stories in that way too you know very sequentially if you kind of throw that notion out and think of time more uh, sort of as a block universe or uh, you know time can flow one direction or the other a lot of these experiences in some ways make more sense to me, you know, that, that, that these guys who were right there when these events occurred also happen to be experiencers. It, it makes me wonder is it, if there's some kind of, uh, you know, deeper connection, uh, almost like a deeper tuning that they have to the events themselves, you know, because when they, when those things happened, they're portrayed to us as these sort of passive participants in, in just doing their jobs, you know, but what if that's not really the reality? What if it's something much more complicated that that they themselves have a part in what was actually taking place, that they are related to the event in, in some deeper way that we're just not really seeing because we only think of it as a sequence of things that happen? I think well, the, the, oh, go on, Dad. I was just going to say the the work of Gary Nolan um, and the Code Putaman. We also look at the the kind of the spindle cells. Um, all of these experiences seems to have these things in common. And we often ask ourselves, do their encounters cause this change in their physiology? And I, I agree with Nathan, there, there might be something there that says these people are more likely to experience this because they have a physical difference. Yeah, some, some of the stuff, again, just to finish up on with the lines that um, an astrophysicist is talking about, you know, blue, blue book, the condom report and these sorts of things, and that pressure from Congress led to these studies that ended up not being open studies, and a lot of what they were talking about in terms of what they were trying to do at the time, I think the citizen hearings were, were touched upon very, very briefly. It sounded a lot like now in what's happening now, uh, even that the final lines are about we need uh, military officials willing to testify, but need immunity from the security oaths. And I think here we are 20 years later and we're, we're hearing that language is being written. 
and we've almost we've almost got to that point and it's been a big gap i mean i suppose the disappointment is if you watched this 20 years ago you'd be like oh we're just on the verge of this happening and is this to bring the subject full circle back to that frustration of people in ufology or, or fans of the ufo topic who have been invested for 40 50 60 years who see what's happening now and these they see folks like us who they would see as newer to the subject getting all excited about hearings and immunity language and oh you've got Lou Elizondo's and Gary Nolan's and they're all really great and they're making us progress and they're looking going yeah I saw this 20 years ago and 30 years ago and 40 years ago so you can kind of understand that cynicism from that point can't you where you go actually this documentary's final minute or two could have been about now and just picking up from there yeah, that, I think that's almost why I saw this as like a, a prototype for the phenomena, uh, James Fox's more recent documentary, because it it really is kind of like he kept making the same documentary, but just updating it. And really with the phenomenon, he kind of hit the nail on the head. And I, I think that at that moment in time was the best documentary that could have been made on the subject. And I would say the same for Out of the Blue, in fact, as well. When it was made, it was probably the best thing it made. And they went when i was making the the thumbnail for the show uh a lot of the posters for the film i came across actually had a quote from michael Shermer, who is kind of the lead of skeptic magazine and the quote was out of the blue emerges as one of the very best films produced on this subject one of the most interesting subjects in the history of science so to convince michael Shermer that this was a, a film worth people's time i i'd say it speaks volume about the film I'm going to come to you both in a minute and ask you for your, your overall thoughts and a rating out of 10 and do you recommend. I'll give you the James Fox quote, though. I texted James a few days ago and asked him, told him we were doing this and asked him for a quote. And James said, I've had a dream to create the seminal feature-length documentary film on the UFO topic since I was in my early 20s. Out of the Blue is a product of an eight-year attempt to do just that. I think ultimately, as proud as I am of it, I failed. But the lessons I learned along the way and that long journey were key to getting the phenomenon created. So I think you both touched on that, that down the line, we've got the phenomenon out of those early attempts that were out of the blue. And then I know what I saw was a bit more of a microscopic look at one incident and one event. And then eventually we've got the phenomenon from it. And soon to have moment of contact, which again is a bit of a, a look under the microscope of one event and the Virginia incident. And then the phenomenon too, which hopefully comes out in the next year or so, I think. I would expect that next year, to be honest. But but yeah, uh, fair quote. Let me come to you, Nathan, first. You're the guest. Um, overall thoughts, and do you recommend and a rating out of 10? Mm, overall thoughts. I think it's excellent. I think... Uh... You know, as you pointed out, it, uh, the moment that it came out, it was probably the the best piece of work that had been done to date. Um, uh, in terms of the title, I'm a little bit confused. The title doesn't, to me, grab you or uh, you know. Did you think what? Me... Like it was going to be more focused on like there was something to do with the oceans or UFOs <laughs> in the oceans, like so, you know, at least something, right? I mean, there's not. I couldn't find a corollary of the title to anything that really happened in the documentary. Uh, so that was a little bit perplexing to me. It's not something that you could go, hey, you should watch this. And they'd be like, what What does it mean? You know, what What am I going to get from that? So mm -hmm. maybe, that, maybe that was a takeaway that he had. I don't know. Uh, but in terms of uh, a training moment or a learning moment in, in his documentary progress, uh, 100%. Uh, he's obviously refined his craft uh, very, very well. I, I would give it, you know, kind of placing it in its time. Uh, I'd probably give it an eight out of 10 out of, for a UFO documentary. It's, it's really well done. It's not hokey. Uh, yes, we kind of can chuckle about the effects or the, uh, maybe the sound that they were using kind of throughout the, 
the film that really started to bother me toward the end there. But uh, those are really more, I think, products of the time. But mm. in terms of the quality of the content, I thought it was really, really, really top, top, top notch. And I would definitely recommend it to folks who who might be interested in looking at this from a more historical perspective. Uh, and then the last thing I would say to your point that you made, Andy, about, you know, kind of feeling like we're on this hamster wheel, you know, is this ever going to break? Are we ever going to break this cycle? Cause it does uh, very much feel as if we're kind of at the same juncture we were 20 years ago. And, I'm, and I know there were points before that that felt the same as well. When is the dam going to break? And I, I really think that, uh, you know, we don't know, but it, to me, you can see, that efforts like that and efforts that are happening now are kind of pushing this a little bit, bit, bit further. It's becoming more acceptable to talk about it in the wider public. That documentary, as great as it was in 2002, you couldn't have a conversation about it, you know, in, in on CNN or something without getting just laughed off the screen. That's where versus now we have people who, who are on there and happy to talk about it and engage in it. People are curious and interested. Um, to me, that is a real sign of hope and, and optimism. Awesome. Dan? So the, the last film we reviewed was the one with Shatner um, smoking cigarettes heavily and being like the, you know, the cigarette smoking man in the X-Files in the back of the office and just waxing lyrical <laughs> about UFOs. So uh, I mean, in my Dan, mind... Dan Aykroyd. Oh, Dan Aykroyd. Sorry. No one named Shatner. My bad. Um, you yeah, texted me Shatner I'd and I was that, like, yeah. why is he calling Dan Aykroyd Shatner? <laughs> but Yeah. <laughs> I, I promise I did watch it. Um, <laughs> Is that on OnlyDance or? <laughs> oh, yeah, on OnlyDance.com. That's where you'll find that one. Uh, it's just full of UFO content. But I, I thought this was much, much, much stronger than that movie. That movie felt like just one guy telling a bunch of stories that may or may not be true. This one kind of laid out a case over history that, as Nathan said, shows that there's a there there. The cover-up is really palpable in this. Uh, you you can see the the dominoes there, and it leads directly to this modern day thing. So I would highly recommend it. I love that they fell back on documents. I love that they fell back on the officials. There was very little woo. It's kind of what I would call a nuts and bolts documentary. Uh, but it does highlight the fact that we have a lot of questions and very, very few answers. And when you guys were talking about out of the blue and what it could mean, I, I thought, well, how awesome would it be if there was a, a USO documentary or a documentary that just focused on exploring the idea of where are they from or mm -hmm. who are they you know and and just kind of put all this maybe off of the table so i think that's what we're going to start seeing maybe in the future and i'd love someone like james fox to to make that case but for now i would give this uh, nine sources out of ten and only one source or less than ten just because um it's not quite the phenomenon and we haven't quite gotten to that huge bit of movement that we've seen in the past few years the peak of this is essentially the the national press club hearings which mm -hmm. weren't proper hearings, but I think we can all agree that if the, the congressional hearings looked more like those, we, we would have had a lot less bad stuff to say about them. Yeah, I will agree on an 8 out of 10. Do you know what? Maybe a 9 out of 10. However, the way I look at this documentary is I saw the Shawshank Redemption years after it was made. I'm so curious and where this is going. It's seen, <laughs> it's seen as like a classic movie with an incredible story and a wonderful twist at the end. But by the time I had saw The Shawshank Redemption, I had seen so many other movies that came after but copied that. And okay. that ending to me wasn't much of a surprise, but I had seen it replicated and parodied in so many other things that I went, ah. But if I realize and remember that actually that was the first movie to do that, that twist was quite unique to that film, then I think you can appreciate appreciate it more. So 
it's a nine out of ten if I realise that this documentary at that point, if I take myself back to two thousand two, yes, this was the pinnacle of that work and forget everything that came since. But yeah, given it's that kind of I'd seen some of this stuff before, even though it might have been the first time some of that footage was used and the way it was put together, I think a solid eight out of ten for me for this one. I definitely recommend people watch it, especially in light of even just those closing scenes that and closing comments and quotes that literally could be now. Um and it just gives you that kind of food for thought. And Dan, wondering about that that USO documentary, is is that something the Phenomenon 2 at least has a, a focus on, given what the Phenomenon had, its, its individual parts, and it talked about the metamaterials, we saw the aerial school phenomenon, we saw various bits and pieces, the work going on in Congress and in the background. Do we hear more about you know Catalina and the incidents that are ongoing? Do we hear more from pilots? Is that something that maybe James works on as part of that? So yeah, I'd, I would like I'd to love that. to see James, once Lou's book is out, Maybe James can make a documentary kind of laying out those events and, and focus completely on Lou's experience with the phenomena and the DOD. Well, I think if the picture uh, Jeremy Corbell put up last week was anything to go by, someone might be trying to work on that documentary with Lou already and getting ahead of the game there. Yeah, we'll have Mickey Rourke playing Lou Elizondo on screen and mumbling his way through two hours. <laughs> sponsored by saucer co and just to finish up folks uh, listener thoughts a lot of you got in touch that one was for dan um barry said this documentary was and probably still is the best ufo documentary ever made not only was it compelling that it was made with high quality it was mesmerizing and the uh no one place oh, and the no one place i was it was mesmerizing and the no one place I always pointed people to. Oh, right, oh okay. number one place. Yeah, number one place, yeah. Sure. There's no full stop there, Barry. Oh, I'm leaving that in so people can hear me in my thought process. <laughs> it was mesmerizing and the number one place I always pointed to for them to learn about the phenomenon. Melanie said, James has a big fan in me. I love his work, his passion for the subject and how well he represents it. Ryan said, has anyone ever mentioned where such a large craft, I think he's talking about some of the objects discussed, if it was man-made, where could it actually be hidden? I don't know, quick discussion point on that one. You know, if we did have these huge, huge big crafts that were flying over Phoenix, for example, where are they going? It's, well, it's just looking for a parking place. You know, sometimes you have to go around the car park a few times <laughs> to find that right spot. So we're thinking like a wrong turn and looking for a parking spot and it's just going around and around. <laughs> but yeah. we'd, we'd, the best place to hide something like that would be the ocean, right? Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, so in the ocean or in a mountain, you know, but the ocean's probably easier because you'd have to build inside a mountain. But yeah, but rumours are rumours, aren't they? But yeah, cool question. Yeah. Uh, Dylan said, I appreciate James Fox, but I'm tired of the personal eyewitness stuff. Nowadays, you need more than that. Eyewitnesses by nature are unreliable. If you ask 10 of them what an orange looks like, you'll get 10 different versions, all in my opinion. Fair enough, Dylan. Totally valid. Steve says, I think James is great. Out of the blue, it's a classic, which abs I absolutely adore. Can't wait for the podcast. Well, here you have it, Steve. William said, it's one of the best documentaries on the phenomenon ever. Probably the best. Superb craftsmanship. Lynn said she watched that a couple of years ago, laid up in bed with a flu, um, and she watched it as well as Stephen Greer's. She felt James Fox's documentaries are better researched with no self-promotion, and that's what she loves about him. Uh, and then again, yeah, Steve, Sally, Emerson, all said amazing, one of the greats, totally loved it, totally loved it. Thank you very much for all of you sending those in. Dan, Nathan, thank you very much for both of you joining us. That was fun. I enjoyed that. Yeah, that was awesome. Thank you. Absolutely. And Nathan, once again, I, I no longer have to miss you. Now I can see your face. I know. <laughs> it's always a pleasure, gentlemen. 
We'll get Nathan back on. Don't worry, it's been too long. But thank <laughs> you once again, folks. And next documentary, um, I am thinking, you can give me your opinions on this, the Dorothy Isaac documentary that's on Amazon Ooh. Prime. Loads of people keep asking about that. People are commenting on it. Um, some folks have seen it. Some folks said they were going to see it. I think capturing that's probably, the light, is that what yeah, it's called? Yeah, capturing sure. the light. Yeah, Dorothy Isaac. Um, I'll tell you straight off the bat, I've seen some of those compelling pictures I don't think they're so compelling. However, I've not seen the documentary for a long time, so I'll go back to it and we'll, we'll do that one next year. So thank sure. you very much and we'll speak soon. If, like me, you have ever had to go looking for a designer, illustrator or voiceover artist, it can be difficult to know where to start. That's where the folks at Fiverr have created the world's largest marketplace for digital services with an incredible database of talented freelancers to cover every one of your business needs. Whether you need a new website, a voiceover for your podcast or someone to manage your social media accounts, Fiverr has you covered. The unique term for a service offered by a seller on Fiverr is called a gig. When creating gigs, sellers can choose their starting price point. Sellers can take this a step further and offer gig packages to buyers using those gig packages. These contain multiple price ranges and sellers can offer buyers various and tailored service packages. In this way, buyers can pick and choose from all that's offered according to their particular requirements. There truly is something for every budget with your payments protected every time. That's really important. Your payment won't be released until you approve the work, so there's no paying for work that isn't of the required standard, giving you the complete control you need to get the perfect product for your business. And for more peace of mind, Fiverr's support team are available 24-7 to answer any questions or provide the help you need. So, if you've been fishing around the net for the right solution, stop. Use the perfect solution and go to Fiverr, that's F-I-V-E-R-R, and find the perfect freelance services for your business today. You can help support this podcast by using my special link, zen.ai forward slash UFO5, that's Z-E-N dot A-I slash UFO and the number five, the next time you need to book a freelancer. Details are in the description.